Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. If you have your Bibles with me, please turn in them to the book of Numbers, chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. That can be found on page 128 of your pew Bible. Just a moment ago, we sang the words, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. But what exactly do we mean when we sing those words? Personally, I feel like I can often say or sing those words without really contemplating their significance or meaning. But the holiness of God refers to the essential nature of God's being and activity, which is entirely distinct and separate from his creation. In other words, when we sing about God's holiness, we're acknowledging that he is wholly other and entirely set apart from all that is common or sinful. His greatness surpasses all that we know or can comprehend. And because God himself is wholly other, that means that every one of his attributes are also holy. His power is holy. His wisdom is holy. His love is holy. His justice is holy. His mercy is holy. And his grace is holy. This means that God is each one of these things in a way that transcends our finite and limited understanding of them. And God demonstrates the holiness of his character to us, to his people, in the ways that he interacts and responds to us. And that is exactly what we see happening tonight in our passage in Numbers 20. Verses 1 through 13. God's holiness is demonstrated first in his response to the congregation of Israel. And then his, his holiness is once again demonstrated in response to Moses and Aaron. So before we... Uh, so let's now turn in our Bibles and read God's holy word. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? 
Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Let us now pray and ask for God's blessing upon the preaching and hearing of his word tonight. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has condescended to make himself known to your people. And you have revealed yourself to be most holy. And I pray that tonight, Lord, we would stand in awe of you and that our response to your word would give you the glory and the honor that you so deserve. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us from your word tonight through me and to your people. I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to understand, and that you would apply your message to our lives this evening that we would go out from this place and live rightly before you. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, just, so our passage begins in uh, verse 1 by telling us that the people of Israel, the whole congregation, settled in a place called Kadesh that was located in the wilderness of Zin which, if you look at a map, you will see is located just outside the promised land. Now, you may remember from way back in Numbers 13, if you've been following along in the series at all, that the Israelites had settled here once before. In uh, Numbers 14, it was in Kadesh that the people of Israel rebelled against the Lord by refusing to enter the promised land 
all because they were too afraid of the inhabitants of the land. As a result, the Lord had punished the people by forcing them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until everyone in that rebellious and wicked generation died off. So it's safe to say that Kadesh was not a place of fond memories for the people of Israel. Next, we are told that Israel came back to Kadesh in the first month, which, if you skip ahead in the book of Numbers to chapter 33, verse 38, there it explains that in our passage, this is describing the first month in the 40th year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. This means that our passage occurs in the final stage of Israel's wilderness wandering, which means that the older generation had all but died off by this point, which is further emphasized with this note here in verse 1 about the death of Miriam, who had been a key leader of that Exodus generation. Now, considering that Israel was back in the place where all their troubles began, just as their exile in the wilderness was coming to an end, you would think that they would be extremely cautious not to repeat the mistakes of the past. You would think that they would have learned their lesson and that they would not do or say anything that might jeopardize their chances to enter the promised land for a second time. But sadly, and to our surprise, such was not the case. As we see in verses 2 through 6, this newer and younger generation didn't learn a whole lot from their parents' mistakes. In fact, they lacked just as much faith as their parents and were just as quarrelsome. As a result, when they came back to Kadesh and had no water to drink, they began to complain and argue with Moses and Aaron, just as their parents had done. Now, I want us to take some time to consider what it is that the people of Israel are saying to Moses and Aaron here, so that we can see and understand just how wicked their attitude really was. And by doing so, we will then be better able to appreciate how God demonstrates his holiness to them. So in verse 3, the people of Israel begin by saying to Moses, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Now here, they are more than likely referring to Korah's rebellion, which happened in chapter 16. You may remember from that passage how Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, along with every one of their family members, were swallowed up by the earth for rebelling against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And in that passage, the Lord had been extremely merciful to the rest of Israel by agreeing not to wipe out the entire nation. But here in our passage, the people of Israel are saying that's exactly what they wished had happened. 
they are identifying themselves with their brothers, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and wishing that they had perished alongside them because in their minds, that was a better fate than their current situation. This response, therefore, demonstrates just how ungrateful they are towards God. They might as well be spitting in God's face with this response. But that's not all that they say. They go on in verse 4 and they ask the question, Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And this accusation in the form of a question is the very same thing that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram had accused Moses and Aaron of. And with this question, the people of Israel are really blaming Moses and Aaron for their own bad choices. After all, it wasn't Moses and Aaron who had refused to enter the promised land nearly 40 years ago. It was the congregation of Israel. As a result, they and they alone were responsible for their current situation. But nevertheless, the people of Israel have the audacity to blame the only two leaders who have been doing nothing but trying to help them do the right thing, to practice obedience to God. And then in verse 5, they finish their complaint by asking yet again, Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. In other words, the people are wishing here that the Lord had never saved them from their slavery in Egypt to begin with. They are saying that to be enslaved in Egypt is preferable than being in this wilderness with no water to drink. They are wishing that the exodus had never occurred. And they are accusing of their God-appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron, of only doing evil to them. And what's really ironic is that they complain here about not having the very same fruit that the promised land was reported and described as having way back in Numbers 13 when the spies had come back with a report of the land. But the fact is that they could have had those figs and vines and pomegranates to their heart's delight if only they and their parents had listened to Moses in the first place. Now all these complaints and ample, uh, all these complaints and comments are amplified and made even worse when we remember where they are and when this is taking place. It's almost unbelievable that the nation of Israel would once again be rebelling against Moses and Aaron right before they are about to enter the land of promise. At the in the very same place where everything went wrong for them nearly 40 years ago. And if that wasn't bad enough, these complaints are especially egregious for yet another reason. And that's 
that this younger generation would still have been old enough to remember what the Lord had done for them the last time they were without water. This was not a unique situation. It had happened once before in Exodus chapter 17, shortly after they had left Egypt. Shortly after they had left Egypt, Israel had settled in a place called Rephidim, where there they had also been without water. And the people had quarreled with Moses on that occasion as well. But an incredible and miraculous display of God's power and grace, the Lord provided them with an abundance of drinking water from a rock. So this generation should have known that the Lord was certainly capable of providing for their needs. And yet they quarreled with Moses and Aaron anyway as if they were doomed to die in the wilderness of Zin. As if the Lord was somehow powerless to save them. Furthermore, uh, last week, Dr. Light preached on Numbers chapter 17. And in that passage, we read about how the Lord caused the staff of Aaron to blossom and to produce rich almonds as a sign to the people that Moses and Aaron were really indeed God's chosen leaders. And in verse 10 of that chapter, chapter 17, the Lord specifically said that this staff bearing almonds and blossoming was to be a sign for the rebels to put an end to their grumblings lest they die. So then the people of Israel in our chapter this evening knew that they were not just grumbling against Moses and Aaron. Because of Aaron's staff, they knew their grumbling was really against the Lord God Almighty who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they also knew that grumbling against the Lord very well might bring them death. This then makes their complaint in our passage even more defiant, even more high-handed, and even more wicked than we might have realized if we had just breezed through this passage. So now let's move on to consider how the Lord responds to the people of Israel here. And when we first read this passage, we all probably suspect that the Lord is going to punish Israel by sending some sort of plague or fire to consume them. After all, we've read, we've already seen similar situations in the book of Numbers play out that way. But to our great surprise, that is not how the Lord responds here. Instead, in verse 8, God demonstrates his love for his people by instructing Moses and Aaron to take the staff and assemble the congregation and to tell the rock that was before their eyes to yield its water so that all the people and their cattle could have something to drink. Needless to say, this is not what the people of Israel deserved. If anything, the people of Israel all deserved to die of thirst there in the wilderness for rejecting and rebelling against the holy God. That's most certainly how any of us 
would respond to someone if they rejected if they rejected us after we had already bent over backwards to do everything we can for them. But fortunately for the Israelites, the Lord is not like one of us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither are our ways his ways. And so God responds not in wrath, but in mercy and compassion towards this sinful people. His response here is reminiscent of how he talks to Israel elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verses 8 through 9, he says, My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And that's exactly what the Lord has done here in our passage. Instead of executing his burning anger, he manifests his holiness in mercy and grace towards Israel. So now let's move on to consider how Moses, God's faithful servant, responds in our passage. In verses 9 through 10, Moses begins to do everything the Lord instructed him. First, he takes the staff from before the Lord. And then second, he gathers the assembly before the rock. But in another surprising turn of events, that is where Moses' obedience in this story comes to an end. Instead of simply speaking to the rock and telling it to bring forth water, Moses rebukes the people saying, Hear now, you rebels! Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And then Moses proceeds to lift up his hand and to strike the rock with his staff twice. Now, there are at least three ways in which Moses acted sinfully in his response to Israel here. The first was that he did not faithfully relay God's message. Here we need to keep in mind that Moses was a prophet. As a result, his job was to speak God's words, not his own, God's words to the people of Israel. But that is not what he does here. God does not rebuke Israel in this passage, nor does God call them rebels. So then Moses, in his own act of rebellion, sinfully misrepresents God to the people of Israel. Second, Moses deliberately disobeys God by hitting the rock with his staff twice instead of simply speaking to it like he was instructed to. And then third and finally, in verse 10, Moses tries to rob God of his glory by talking as if he and Aaron were the ones responsible for, mirac for miraculously bringing forth water from the rock. Notice he says, shall we, shall me and Aaron bring forth water from this rock for you? He's claiming responsibility for God's miracle. So then Moses misrepresents God. He disobeys God. And he tries to steal God's glory. 
Now, I suspect the reason for this is that Moses got a little fed up with God for not responding in wrath towards the people of Israel. You can imagine how angry and frustrated Moses must have been to have the people coming to him complaining and grumbling and quarreling with him once again, right on the cusp of entering the promised land. So I think Moses was upset with the Lord for responding so graciously to a sinful people. And as a result, I think the meekest man on earth in the heat of the moment tried to take matters into his own hands in order to vindicate himself and to establish his own superiority over the people. Sadly, this does not end well for Moses. In verse 12, God speaks to Moses and Aaron saying, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And here in this verse, we now get at the root cause of Moses' sin. The root cause of Moses' sin was unbelief. God says, because you did not believe in me. So when God responded so graciously to the people of Israel, Moses for a moment lost faith in his Lord. This means that in that moment, he no longer believed that God knew best. And so he did not honor God as holy in the eyes of the people. In other words, he did not uphold God as the ultimate authority who works all things together for the good of his people and for his own glory. As a result, Moses was no longer deemed worthy by God to lead his people into the promised land. Now, perhaps at this point, if you're anything like myself, when you read this passage, you're thinking, man, that sure does sound a little harsh, Lord. Like, this is Moses we're talking about. He's been so faithful for so long and he's put up with so much. Isn't he allowed to slip just once? And why is it that the people of Israel behaved, who behaved so wickedly, why is it that they get to enter the promised land and not Moses? Well, I think the answer has everything to do with who the rock in our passage was meant to represent. Later on in the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses himself writes, The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Notice there that God, Moses calls God, he calls Yahweh the rock. Likewise, the psalmist in Psalm 78 verse 35 writes, They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. 
And then finally, later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, writes this, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You see, this rock was no ordinary rock. This rock and the water that flowed from it was supposed to symbolize God's amazing and holy grace that would one day flow from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which is why Jesus himself in John's gospel in chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. If you have your Bibles, I invite you, there, invite you to turn there with me for a brief moment. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. There Christ says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. But what exactly are these rivers of living water that Christ is referring to? Well, the Apostle John explains to us in verse 39 of that chapter. He, he writes, Now this, this living water, he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, the rivers of living water is figurative language meant to describe the Holy Spirit, who Christ poured forth on his church on the day of Pentecost when he ascended into heaven and, seated, and was seated at the right hand of glory. The Holy Spirit is described as rivers of living water because it is the Holy Spirit who comes from Christ to revive the hearts and souls of men, giving us new life through our union with Jesus Christ. So then this is why Moses received such a seemingly harsh punishment for his sin. For by misrepresenting God and striking the rock and taking credit for the miracle himself, Moses was undermining and blaspheming God's mighty act of salvation that would be worked out in the fullness of time through Jesus Christ, which the rock, along with the waters that poured from it, were meant to be a picture of. So hopefully we now have a better understanding of why God punished Moses the way that he did. According to verse 13, the Lord punished Moses to show and uphold his own transcendent and surpassing holy character, full of mercy and steadfast love as it is fully displayed in Jesus Christ. And I think here the application for us is how are we going to respond to Jesus Christ, our rock, 
and his living waters? Are we going to drink from them on a daily basis? When we wander through life's wilderness in the desert, starving and dying of thirst because our souls are empty, are we going to look to Christ and are we going to rely on the Holy Spirit to guide us through that wilderness? Are we going to rely on the Holy Spirit to see us through life's trials and temptations and challenges? Or are we, like Moses, going to try to take matters into our own hands? Are we going to act as if we're God and live life on our own terms because the Lord's ways just don't seem to make sense? What will we do? I pray that we would look to the rock. I pray that we would drink the life-giving waters from our Lord and Savior and receive his Holy Spirit and so be empowered to live rightly before the Lord our God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you have sent your one and only Son to take on flesh and to become man to live and dwell amongst us. To do what we could not. To live a perfect and righteous life. And then to suffer and die the punishment that we so justly deserved. And we thank you that in your power you raised him from the dead. And that he is now ascended at your right hand where he lives to intercede for us. Thank you that because of what he has done, that we now live with your Holy Spirit in us, reviving our souls, making us new creatures made in his image. Lord, we confess that even with all your blessings and the incredible mercy that you have shown us in this great act of compassion in Jesus Christ, it's still hard to live life. It's still hard to go through life's challenges and trials. And so often we're tempted. We're tempted to turn our backs on you. We're tempted to, to do things in our way because we understand them. Lord, I pray that when you call us to travel through life's wilderness that we would not abandon you. But I pray that we would depend on you and that we would look and drink from the liver, lit waters of living water that you have given us. And I pray that you would empower us to live rightly before you, to give glory and honor to your name. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.